0: great to sing with you this morning and be reminded of that. Uh, For those of you that are utilizing our children's ministry, we run that um, through the first grade. You're most welcome to take your children back there now. For those of you whose kids are staying in the service, just again, I'll remind you of this each week. We love having the the kids in the service. We love that they're, again, learning along with us, um, just the rhythms of worship. We do not mind The noise, I think at this stage in the game, if I were preaching to a silent room, I would be vastly uncomfortable. Um, uh, But with that, we have, as you know, we've been working through our uh, just confession of faith, the London confession of faith, just paragraph by paragraph, the London confession of faith being our our statement of faith as as a church body. And and, uh, the drafters of the confession, when they're When they put it together, they were taking into account all of God's Word, the whole counsel of God's Word on the particular themes that they wrote of. And we've been looking at chapter 8, which um, addresses Christ as mediator. And this morning, I'm going to read to you paragraph 7 of chapter number 8. And so, uh, paragraph 7 says this, Christ, in the work of mediation acteth according to both natures, meaning his human nature and his divine nature, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. And so it's saying that the, the Word of God, that we shouldn't divide the two natures of Christ, right? That he is two natures in one Person, And as we read of Scripture's testimony about Christ, we should certainly keep in mind uh, both His human nature and His divine nature. And so, with that said, would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We are going to this morning look at verses 7 to 13. Verses 7 to 13. And this details for us what I will call throughout this message kind of a mini commission, okay? We're going to see the, the apostles of Jesus. Um, we're going to re-identify them. Mark did that earlier in this gospel, but I'm going to use Matthew's account to kind of go through the names again quickly. But we see that Jesus this morning uh, in our text, he sends them out on sort of this trial run commission, if you will, while he's still present with them. And uh, the other accounts, if just as you're, you know, kind of reading along or seeking to study along as we go through the gospel of Mark, Matthew chapter 10 details this account, and and so does Luke chapter 9. But I'm going to read Mark's account, verses 7 to 13, and then I'll pray, and then we will work through this text together. The word of the Lord says this, and he called the 12 to himself, "...and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals light footwear, is, and not to put on two tunics." Also, he said to them, "In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Some sober words there, right? Verse 12 and 13. So, they went out, uh, apostles did, and they preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. We go to the Lord together in prayer. God, we thank you for, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that our salvation really has been accomplished in Jesus. God, I pray we never get over that. God, We're so We so easily forget that, God, and when we do, we don't fight sin well. When we forget that, Lord, we live in constant despair. So, God, we come because we need to be reminded that Christ crucified Lord, Christ resurrected is everything, it's everything. And so, Lord, help us to revel in that this morning. Help us to hunger and thirst for Christ anew this morning. Help me to do that this morning. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You speak to us through Your Word. We ask that Your Spirit would help us understand, help us to see strengthen and encourage us. Mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. As we uh, <clears throat> work through this passage, you know, as I just read this passage to you a moment ago, you'll you'll notice it's, it's brevity, right, which isn't unfamiliar to us journeying through the gospel of Mark. Matthew, if you were to compare Matthew's account, he gives us significantly more detail than what we see here in the Gospel of mark and so i'm going to i'm going to bring in this morning various aspects of matthew's account not not in order to preach Matthew because i'm preaching Mark, but in order to help us further understand what Mark uh, is emphasizing uh, in these seven verses here now. We notice, and we have noticed as we've journeyed through this gospel, um, a group of disciples that have been following Jesus uh during his his ministry during his his first advent right and some of these disciples have been specifically called out and and and, and were given their names, right We see this If you remember back in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, right? And then we see further disciples that are specifically mentioned as well in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. And and now we see in our text this morning this summoning, if you will, this this summoning of all of these disciples that we've seen named. And, And we know that they aren't just disciples, right? They are what? Apostles. They're apostles. Now, all apostles are disciples when we see that in our text, but not all disciples are apostles, right? And it's important for us to to make that distinction. Those those two things are not uh, synonymous with one another, but we see these initial apostles in our text uh, called by Christ to himself. And I say initial because later, Right, we have the calling of the apostle Paul, right, by the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus as he was going to further persecute the church, and we have Matthias that re- later replaces Judas Iscariot, right, the 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 apostle that betrayed Jesus. Right, uh, Matthias, he he was a, a disciple who who was w- with Christ. He was with the other disciples. Um, the the uh, historical account tells us that he was with them from the time of John the Baptist's ministry, baptizing Jesus on through uh, the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. So, you know, he's an, an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ as well. But but here in our text, we, we have the original twelve apostles that are called by Christ. And, and they're not named in, in our passage this morning, right? Again, because Mark has already named them. But just to remind us, the list according to Matthew's account, because Matthew puts the list in this particular um, account, and he, he says this: Matthew chapter 10, starting with verse 2, said, the names. Of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And so we get this list. So these are the the twelve apostles that Jesus especially set apart, right? It's, it's these men, minus Judas, along with the Apostle Paul and Matthias, who would become the foundation of the church, along with the prophets of the Old Testament. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he tells us this much in his letter to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 2, you can turn there if you like, verses 19 to 22, and we have it up here on the screen as well. But The Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus, he says, "...now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God." And get this, "...having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets." Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22, right? we see in this Ephesians passage that right, those that are in Christ, and he gives this to the, the church of Ephesus, but surely this is true for the church today, Right? But we're no longer strangers and foreigners, right, unknown and unaccustomed to the ways of our good king, right instead we're called fellow citizens, saints, members of the household of God, right and this is a household that is being built on the foundation of the apostles and of the prophets and and we should see and note the continuity that the apostle Paul brings between the old and the new testaments. And what is it that's bringing them together? What is it that is bringing the old and new testaments together? That's bringing the prophets and the apostles together. It's the cornerstone. It's the cornerstone. It's Christ. Right? The foundation is is spread across the cornerstone the foundation stone if you will that is Jesus and this foundation that's poured with Christ as the cornerstone it's never laid again right it's never laid again that's why we don't have apostles or prophets in the biblical sense of the office in fact I'd argue that We shouldn't even use those categories it's unhelpful it's confusing when churches do that we're not receiving new revelation from god we have fixed revelation we we know what is orthodox we know what is orthodox we know what's heretical and blasphemous right the foundation isn't still being poured it's not still being poured it has been poured it's cured, it's solid. The structure, which is the church, has been built on it for the last 2,000 years. It's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. This structure that is the church, it won't crumble. It's sure, it's steady, because again, it has Christ as the cornerstone. So again, from there, from the foundation being laid, we, according to Paul here, again in this Ephesians passage, we're being fit together, we're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Right? And he says, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So we see here the apostolic work. Okay, this is the apostolic work. We see why the twelve, right, that were you know selected out of all the disciples, why it was that they were selected, right? We see that they were to lay this foundation, and they were to do so alongside of the prophets of the Old Testament, and and that connective tissue again between the prophets and between the apostles, the connective tissue is Christ Jesus. That's important for us to see. That's important for us to understanding, right? Knowing that help, helps keep us from being manipulated by false teachers, by the way. So we have the 12, and, and what we see here, and I've mentioned this already, is they're getting their feet wet, right? They're getting their feet wet, right? Uh, all along, we've seen them being mentored by Jesus on the go, right? Being mentored uh, by Jesus as Jesus ministers they're witnesses to his preaching his preaching of the gospel his preaching of repentance and faith they're witnesses to his application of scripture right how he's applying the old testament and how he's demonstrating and again we saw this last week how he's demonstrating that he's the fulfillment of the old testament writings they are witnesses to his miracles In addition, they've also been privately instructed by Jesus. We see back in Mark chapter 4, verse 11, that he allowed them to understand and to embrace the mystery of the kingdom of God. And this isn't so that they could hoard the message, right? Christ disciples these apostles so that they may proclaim the mystery of the kingdom of God, that the Messiah has in fact come, God in flesh, and that his name is Jesus. And so we see here this this trial run as it relates to that proclamation. Jesus sending out the apostles while he is still physically with the apostles. So it reads, this account reads a bit like a mini commission. In fact, later in this chapter, we see the return of the apostles, and they kind of give a report to Jesus on how they how they fared in this trial run. But he sends out the twelve in his authority to promote the gospel of God, to preach a gospel of repentance and of faith, two sides to the same coin, right? And they do that as they've seen Christ do, All right? And, 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 and they're, they're, as they're proclaiming it, again, announcing that this long-awaited-for kingdom has come, The king has come and he's brought his kingdom, repent and believe the gospel. And Jesus has authorized them to do this message. This is why we see him give the gift of healing and the ability to perform exorcisms. They were demonstrating that they were representing Jesus. In fact, if you you think of Luke's account, right, as it relates to God authorizing the apostles to do these miracles in these early days of the spreading of the, the church. If we were to think of Luke's account of the early church spreading in the book of Acts, right, we see a group of Jewish Jewish exorcists who were not authorized by Christ to act as if they were apostles. And in seeking to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus, we see this happen in Acts chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the name, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Right, so so apostles were those who were authorized by Christ himself, whose the cornerstone, to to lay the foundation in his authority. He gave them mighty revelatory gifts to to demonstrate the coming of the kingdom so that the body of Christ, so that the church would be established, so that it would be established. Now, as Jesus sends these apostles out, he does so in pairs, as we saw, right, in, in the text. He sends them out two by two, and that can be for numerous reasons. It can be for comfort and strength and 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 so that they might persevere in the in this tremendous ministry that he's called them to. Right? We see in the book of Ecclesiastes, just uh, chapter four, the reminder of the value of a friend as it relates in finding comfort and not being discouraged. And and listen, ministry can be very lonely, and a companion can help to aid in that. And so we we see Jesus send them out two by two. Furthermore, it can also be uh, argued that. Uh, that, that this is for evidence' sake. Evidence, according to biblical law, should have been should be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter nineteen. We see that reiterated even as it relates to a credible accusation in Matthew chapter eighteen. Right, but two or three witnesses, so that evidence may be established. what, ev- what, what is it? What, what's the testimony that needed to be established? The testimony that Christ is Lord. The testimony that Christ is the eternal God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what needed to be established in these early days. Now, as they go out, Jesus tells them to travel light, right? Some theologian says that this mirrors that of the Exodus when the Lord gives instructions to Moses and to Aaron at the institution of the Passover for the Israelites to be ready to to leave Egypt. Right? The the connection for some is that they were to be in a position at, at which they could leave at God's summons. They could leave at God's summons. The apostles were to travel light so that they could be swift in their obedience. Right? But another reason for the instructions, it seems, is to put the apostles in a position by which they saw more, more tan- tangibly that they're utterly dependent upon the Lord, for their needs. Now, if you were to read Matthew and Luke's account, you'd see that both say that the apostles were forbidden even to take a staff, right? But Mark here, he grants the staff, and, and the reason for that relates to the purpose of the staff, right? If you think of Psalm 23, you think of that phrase, what thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, right? Uh, they comfort me, right? The shepherd has a, a rod and staff, right? The, 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 uh, a, a part of that, that crook, the shepherd's crook, if you will, was both for guiding the sheep, but it was also for walking. It was a walking stick. But there was a a rod element to the shepherd's work that would be used to fight off fierce predators, right? And, and, and what is in view in Matthew and Luke's account is that the apostles and being sent out here, they didn't need a weapon, right? And, and what we see Mark doing is emphasizing, if take a walk, take a walking stick, right? And so they they go out with a walking stick. They don't go out for a war, a, phys, a physical, flesh and blood sort of war, right? Now I want to leave off here, just as it relates to. Giving context and filling in details of the text, because I, I want to get I want to get into some applications for us. Because I think as as we get into the application, other aspects of this passage will just become clear, and the context will become clear. And, and I think those are kind of enough details for us so far. But if you're taking notes, and kids, again, you've got a, a guide as well. You can use your mom and dad's worship guide to kind of copy off of them. But the first thing that I just want us to think about and sit in for a minute is the, uh, the reality that we need to come to Christ continually, right? We must come to Christ continually. Verse 7 says, and he, right, speaking of of Christ, he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two. He called the twelve, right? I, I, I want to just spiritually. Up, up, Apply and think through that phrase, right? He, he called the twelve to himself, right? That because that phrase has just rolled over just in my my head and in my heart this week. We left off last week with Jesus going on a um uh a, a, a teaching circuit. Um, uh, I, I, don't know if, I almost called it a, a sort of a tour. It is, it's is kind of how it it feels as you read it, but he went on this teaching circuit, and he did this after the rejection that he faced in his own hometown, right? And, and perhaps between that and our text this morning, the apostles were in different locations, okay? So, so, so Jesus calls the, the twelve here, the original twelve, to himself for the purpose of sending them out. But, but think for a minute of being called to Christ, Just think of that for a minute, called to meet with Him, called to uh, be strengthened by Him, to be assured by Him, to receive instruction from Him. Though Christ is, is resurrected and ascended and He's at the right hand of the Father now, isn't He still spiritually present with us? Even in this very moment and isn't there an invitation from him to to us this invitation to you and to me to come to come to him and the more I've thought about that, the more've you know I've asked what may seem like an obvious question to you, but I think if we you know, even perhaps when we go home for the rest of this Lord's Day, maybe ask ourselves this question and be willing to answer the question honestly. And the question is this, like, do we come to Jesus? And I mean, do we? Do, are we continually coming to Him? Do we want to come to Him? And I, I don't know about you, but I needed to hear this phrase put that way, right? I don't want to make the pulpit this place of confession, but just to confess to you this morning, even as your pastor, I'm Prone to do things in my own strength, I'm prone to do that. I'm prone to just push through hard times to to go on without continually coming to Christ. I'm prone to prayerlessness. I'm prone to impatience, and that's that's a bad cycle to get in. It's not a it's it's the it's the path toward burnout, right? It's certainly not healthy for us. And when you're struggling in this in life as we all do, right? To various degrees there can be this tendency to just put your head down and, and push through on the on the one hand or on the other hand just check out in despair. Right? Both are evidences that you're not coming to Jesus. Right? Both are evidences of that. Right? There are also things in our lives and they always seem to be there that seem urgent or that we at least log as urgent. There's always a need. There's always some sort of task, something that requires your attention, right? Our, Our work is never finished. And when we do have spare time, we waste it on something that doesn't give us life, but rather numbs and distracts us. Yet, as the apostles came to Christ, so should we come to Christ. We should come to Christ one thing that's striking to me about the end of this trial run and, and this, this many great commission, it's book-ended with time with Jesus. If you were to look at verses 30 to 31, this is the, this is the report. The apostles gathered to Jesus. They gathered to him. But they came back to him and they told him all the things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And here's what Jesus said to them, come, come. Aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going. They didn't even have time to eat. Listen, if anyone understood urgency, when you're looking around in the first century and there's no one else that's Christians and you know that people without Christ are dying and going to hell, that's an urgent time, isn't it? Yet here we have Christ saying, Come with me to the deserted places. Come spend time with me. It should be startling in the same way that even when we looked a few weeks ago at Jesus going to heal Jairus' daughter, he was in no rush to get there. She died before he got there. Christ is not in the hurry that we're in, and Christ tells us to come, and it's good for our souls to make it the habit of our lives to come to Christ, to regularly come to Christ. And listen... That's the sustainable path. No matter what your vocation is in life, that is the sustainable path. That is what provides water in this drought, this side of eternity. So there's a good pattern for us here to continually come to Jesus. How, may, how, may, how, how, should, how should we do that, right? That may be the question that you're asking this morning. I mean, You may get sick of me hearing, hearing me say this, but... We have to gather each Lord's Day, right? And really, this is, the, this is the fundamental way that we come to Him and we lay hold of His promise to be present with us and to nurture us through the ordinary means of grace. We must gather. We must gather. Make it a priority in your life. For those of us with young children, I know that that can be hard just to get out of the door and, and maybe you come, especially moms, you're coming here and happy Mother's Day and I'm glad you're here and you can think I'd rarely get to listen to the sermon. I rarely get to sing a song because I'm focusing on my kids. That's hard. But I'm so glad you're here and you should gather here Because you're teaching your children the rhythms of worship. And listen, God is doing more in your soul than you realize. Right? He's doing more in all of us than we realize, than we discern so often by being here, by gathering here, by making it a priority, by pushing through the difficulties of that habit. So we gather. But supplemental to this, we should come to him each day. We should come to Him each day. We should commune with Him. We should commune with Christ. And and I know, again, this looks different for all, uh, all of us in different seasons of life. Some of us have more time than others have, but we need to heed the call of Christ, and His call has come. It's come, right? Make it the habit of your life. He's given us His Word, which is our spiritual food, right? Numerous places in Scripture give us this picture of eating the words of God, right, of chewing on them, of digesting them, of getting all the nutritional value out of them. We want to take in the nutrients of Holy Scripture, knowing that God is using it to shape us. We must be a praying people too. We must pray, right? I wonder for some of us, if we were to calculate how much time we spend complaining or worrying versus how much time we spend speaking to God, which one would outweigh the other? Which one would outweigh the other? Believer, we, we have to come to Christ continually. Make Him your heart's desire. Right? He's your portion. He's your strength. In Him, you live and move and you have your being. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Interestingly enough, I think Jesus is making that a point in the very instructions that He gives to the apostles. Right? They weren't to take... A beggar's bag. They weren't to beg for money, which was common in that day and age. They weren't to actually even carry money for food. They weren't to have two tunics, which in those days one was for wearing and one could be used as sort of this makeshift shelter, if you will. They were only to have clothes and light footwear and a walking stick. And this isn't because Jesus is an advocate of poverty theology. That's not what's going on here. But for the apostles in this trial run, this many great commission, Jesus put them in a position to have to be mindful and trusting of the Lord's providential care for them. And in a very tangible way, Jesus was putting the apostles in a position to be needy. He was putting them in a position to be dependent. And as the apostles would see, the Lord would provide for their needs. He would provide for their needs. This is why Matthew's... This is why in Matthew's account, we see more detail as it relates to the instructions Jesus gives to the disciples. He tells them again, Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 31, very familiar passage to many of us. Maybe we have it committed to memory. Jesus says this, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very heads of your hair are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And you've heard those words before, but did you know it was in this context? Did you know it was in this context? How comforting these words must have been to them. How much more comforting these words would have been in the days after the ascension of Christ, when the church was, you know... Wildly persecuted, and believer, these words remain true today. These words remain true today. So, in light of that, come to Christ, and as you do, be reminded of this glorious truth. See your utter dependence upon Him this morning, and leave behind any prideful sense that you're self self sufficient. You're not self sufficient. Every good and perfect gift comes from your Father of Lights, James chapter one verse. 17. So come to him this morning and leave behind fears, leave behind anxieties. The hairs on your head are numbered. Nothing will happen to you that's outside of our good God's will. Trust him. Abide in Christ. Come to Jesus. That's the first thing. Secondly, you be reminded. You will face hostilities you will face hostilities, and God's gospel will triumph. You're going to face hostilities, and God's gospel will triumph. Both of those things are true. Both of those things are true. We see evidence of that here. We see evidence of that certainly in our society. It's not a coincidence that this great sending out comes on the hills of Jesus being rejected. If Jesus was rejected. And again, we, we saw that it had to do with his authority and his application of scripture last week, but if Jesus was rejected, will his followers be spared from rejection? No And isn't a rejection of the followers of Christ? Just a rejection of Christ himself right It, it is. we see that even more we see even more clearly why the apostles would have needed to be comforted by Christ before he sent them out. Jesus says there will be places that won't receive you, nor will they hear you. They won't even hear you. They won't even give ear to what you have to say, right? I think of the biblical accounts we have of people that would tear their clothes in wrath, right? We see that in in the New Testament, right? In Christ's preachings and the apostles' preaching, right? People who in rejection tear their clothes, right? In many instances, that's the way in which Christ and His Word is greeted in our day and age, right? Christ and His claim over our lives and the clarity and the unwavering judgment the Scripture has on that which is immoral, it's not met with indifference. It's not met with apathy. I was sent just this week a video of a girl standing before a, a um, town council somewhere in California, and instead of speaking into the microphone, she just screamed into the de- microphone, and she declared her hatred for those that were on the, the council because she demanded that unrighteousness be deemed as righteous and promoted. It, it, it reminded me in some ways of the, te- the tearing of the clothes, and Christ wasn't even being promoted in this meeting, right? It was just that wickedness was not being celebrated the way that this individual wanted wickedness to be celebrated, But church, I I want us to see this clearly, and I know many of you do. But we have to be reminded, Christ and His kingdom and the demands that His kingdom makes, which is total submission. It genuinely is not met with indifference, right? It isn't met, wasn't met with indifference in the first century. It's not going to be met with indifference in our 21st century. You're going to encounter hostilities as Christians, not just as you proclaim the gospel of God, but in our day and age, even refusing to call what is unrighteous righteous because of your commitment to Jesus will be met with hostilities because it's an indictment on a sin-sick conscience. And for those that won't listen, those that refuse to repent of sin and turn in faith to Christ, there's a judgment coming there's a judgment coming, and we can't downplay that, and we can't ignore it. We can't bury our heads in the sand and pretend that it's not. Jesus says as much to the apostles when he instructs them on how to deal with those that would reject the gospel of God. He says, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. All right, this was apparently a Jewish custom when leaving a a Gentile region. They would shake the dust off of their sandals lest they bring in the pagan world and its customs into Israel. But one pastor says it this way. He said, that act, it symbolizes God's judgment over paganism. It symbolizes God's judgment over paganism. We, we see Paul and Barnabas do it in their missionary journeys, Acts chapter 13, verse 51. But that's exactly here what Jesus instructs the apostles to do. It wasn't just them moving on, though it was that right? They weren't, they didn't have an audience. No one would hear them. They rejected what they were heralding. It was time to move on, but it was also a further message. The knocking off of the sandals were, it was a further message. It was a warning to those who refused to confess Christ as Lord. In the NKJV, the translation I read, we see that phrase, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That's a part of verse 11 in my in the translation we read. Right, that's why I think we can say that shaking off the dust off the sandal was was a last message, if you will. It was a warning of a coming judgment. But that phrase is excluded in some English translations, uh, different translations. Perhaps it's excluded in yours because that phrase is missing in some of the ancient manuscripts. However, we have every reason to have confidence that that phrase should be included for at least just three reasons quickly. One, it harmonizes well with both Matthew in Luke's account. Reason two, most manuscripts include that phrase, and we have lots and lots of manuscripts. Three, the majority of the church believed it, that that, that it, it was in fact included in Mark's account. But but as we promote Christ, right, we promote all that His Word says, right? We, we, we have to be whole counsel of God's Word people. But as we do that, and as we warn of judgment that's coming, we, we shouldn't be surprised by the various hostilities. And if we turn back to Matthew's account, we get even more detail about the hostilities that Jesus prepared his apostles for. Look back just one more time with me. Verses 16 to 20 of Matthew 10, and then skip down to verse 24, and I'm going to read down to verse 31. Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of what? Wolves. Wolves therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But we wear of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Right? God had purpose in their suffering. And the, but when they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Then drop down to verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, right? We've seen Jesus being accused of being a demon already in Mark's account. It says, if that's the case, how much more will they call those of the, his household? Therefore, don't fear them. For there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. All right, so, so Jesus is preparing his apostles well on, on how to suffer, right? And to in their suffering, announce the coming judgment, right? And that phrase, Sodom and Gomorrah, that's used there, I mean, that's a startling, like especially if you're, you're proclaiming that to people familiar with their Old Testaments, the proclamation, they know, they know the judgment over Sodom and Gomorrah, And when that's being compared and and being said, this is going to be, there's a judgment worse than that coming, right? Should be sobering. So he prepared his apostles to proclaim a message and he he prepared them in so doing to suffer well. And listen, the church has made much progress since the first century. The church has made much progress since the first century. There are still hostilities today. Right? All we need to do, again, is just look around at j- just the United States to see how wicked and perverse our cultural climate is. Right? As we look around, we should know that suffering for the cause of Christ is nothing good. Again, Christ is not met with indifference. But there has been progress that has been made, and I genuinely believe I, that, that Christians shouldn't be doom and gloom on this issue. I, I wholeheartedly reject this pessimistic outlook on our world, I, I believe that God's plan for the nations are going to go forward. The gospel of God will accomplish its intended purpose, right? And what do we see the apostles do in light of Christ's instructions and his warning about the various dangers that they would face and the rejection that they would face? Look at the last two verses in Mark 6. They went out. They went out. They preached that people should repent. They cast out many demons. They anointed oil with oil many who were sick and healed them. Again, they went out. Progress was made. And, and, and not, just, not just some progress, not just some progress, lots of progress was made despite the fierce opposition that Christ warned them about. Right? After especially this trial run, we know that though these apostles faced persecution and most of them martyred them, they still made lots of progress for the kingdom of God. How do we know that, right? Aside from having records of God's church growing these past 2,000 years, you and I are sitting here this morning. We're both sitting here this morning. Right? We know that we've been changed by the gospel of God, right? And just as this gospel has gone forth despite resistance, so it will continue to go forth. And as it goes forth, God's plans for the nations will be accomplished. It must be accomplished because Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, right? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, He's the one that's given these instructions. So, our calling is this, trust and obey, Trust and obey. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You for this time we've had in Your Word. Help us, Lord, to be motivated to come to Christ. Help us to be motivated in persevering through trials and sufferings that may come our way because of our commitment to Jesus. Prevent us from having a pessimistic outlook on your plan and your purpose for this world. Help us to engage it with bravery with the fear of the Lord and with love for fellow image bearers. And we trust you, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.